Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk again to Imam Tom. Welcome back, sir. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. As you all know, Tom has kindly agreed to discuss the books that have made a significant difference to him intellectually. And today, Tom will be discussing an extremely important book entitled The Impossible State, Islam, Politics and Modernity's Moral Predicament, by Wa'al Halak, and this is the rather amazing cover, actually, there. Um, and it's, caught, it's got a, a little sticker on there saying, oh, well, you, we both got the same copy. <laughs> um, you probably got a signed copy, I have. Uh, the, <laughs> Columbia, the Columbia University Distinguished Book Awards. So this is one awards. And what's interesting is um, uh, Halak is a professor in the humanities at Columbia University, where he's been teaching ethics, law, and political thought since two. 2009, and is considered a leading scholar in the field of Islamic legal studies and has been described as one of the world's leading authorities on Islamic law. And Halak is a Christian, interestingly, uh, although I think he actually features in a, a list of the top 500 Muslim scholars, um, that annual list of uh, uh, very influential Muslims that comes out, and he's actually one, one of them, although he's actually a Christian. And he's born uh, to a Palestinian Christian family in somewhere called Nazareth, which I think you may have heard of. Um, so, uh, Imam Tom, would you like to introduce us to this seminal work? Yes, after Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Salat Salam Rasulillah. So, yeah, so Wa'al Halak uh, is a very, very important thinker um, and an important contemporary thinker. Um, Yes, he was born into a Christian family, but for a lot of people, um, they might get spooked by that. But I want to just assure people that if you read his work, um, you'll be astonished at the way in which he writes about the Sharia and astonished in a positive way. I mean, yeah. some of some of the ways in which he writes about the Sharia as a Muslim are extremely inspiring and, and, you know, humbling and beautiful. So don't be turned off. And, you know, we also have to realize, I think, in Western uh, academia that um, there's a price to pay for showing all of your cards, right? Um, and that is to say that it, for all we know, and I've had, you know, certain individuals say that, you know, he, he might be leaning towards Islam in his personal life. Um, we can't tell exactly, but... Um, I think that people should realize that for somebody of his stature in his field, that he would very easily be discredited if, say, he were to come out and say that, okay, I've embraced the faith of Islam. It would it would potentially be very damaging for his academic reputation. Um, so um, I have high hopes. <laughs> I think of anybody who 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 reads his work seriously and carefully, carefully, such as you and I do. Um, I, I think we have high hopes that that this individual, inshallah, will. Uh, either already has been guided to the truth or or will be guided in the future. And there is a wonderful clip of his being interviewed uh, on YouTube, as easy to find, where he talks about his preference. Now, he's an American citizen living in, you know, the, the world's superpower. He would much rather, he says, prefer to live uh, in, under an Islamic system, Sharia, specifically, he said Sharia, than he would uh, in the West. And the reason he, the reasons he gives are extremely interesting. And uh, as you rightly say, if you're a Muslim, uh, what he says is actually very inspiring. Um, and it's difficult to tell if he is a Christian, but he says he is, or ha he has said he is. Um, so there we go. And that's actually a perfect segue to the point of the book, and um, and we'll talk about kind of in a second uh, the the situation or the context of this book within the author's sort of body of work. But you know, when you say that uh, he remarked that he would rather live in uh, a Sharia system or under Sharia system, you know, the first uh, reaction for any listener would be like, well, where, you know, uh, which sort of um, situation or context or government or nation is the best suitable 
place that he would consider something that is, you know, quote unquote, ruling by the Sharia is kind of the, the common phrase that, that Muslims use. And uh, his response would be, I'm guessing, and the point of this book is that there is no such place on the face of this yeah. earth. Right, right now, um, and uh, that's the concept of the the title, which is called the impossible state. Okay, yeah. the thesis of the entire book is that there is no such thing as an Islamic state, <laughs> yeah. and that is to say, and we're going to go into it and unpack exactly what he, what he means by that. But he's basically saying that the Sharia, the true system of the Sharia, is completely incompatible with the technology of governance that is known as the state, and so there they are mutually exclusive forces they're completely fundamentally contradicting forces yeah. if there is a state then there is no sharia and if there is a sharia then there is no state hmm. um now that's a bold claim and we're going to underpack uh, we're going to unpack excuse me exactly what he means by that um but in a second like uh, or for a second let's just talk about the role of this particular work within the stream of his works mm. um, most of his earlier works are much more empirical uh, and they are fascinating from somebody who studied usul fiqh and fiqh within in arabic and from traditional classical sources mm. um, it, some of the say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Best renderings of usul fiqh that I've found and the nuance in legal reasoning um, can be found in Halak's work, such as, yes, an introduction into Islamic law, uh, his other uh, his other work, Transformations. It's got a longer title than that, but it's got Transformations in the title. Um, he does a fantastic job of uh, better than anybody else in the English language that I have seen, um, sort of elucidating the nuance and, of legal reasoning and, and how it is. You know, if you if you read Orientalist scholarship or most uh, religious studies scholarship, you're going to get the tired old tropes of literalists versus, you know, modernists and, and these sorts of things. Um, people who think that, that the Hanbalis or Imam Ahmed are just literalists or fundamentalists or things like that. All these sorts of very, very forced oppositions that come from Christian experience and Christian theology. Um, and so uh, he doesn't commit those mistakes. He is very, very, he's got a very keen sense of detail. And does a great job representing accurately and faithfully representing yeah. um, the internal anatomy and logic of uh, of Islamic law and Islamic reasoning. Um, so as his works went on, you know, they got a bit more theoretical. And so, for example, um, you'll find in uh, an introduction to Islamic law, which you just pointed out a second mm -hmm. ago, he will use the word Islamic state. Okay. Yeah. And now in this book, he's completely refuting that idea and taking back that kind of terminology. Um, so this work and the work that he published after this, uh, restating Orientalism, our goal in this series of videos is to cover these two books because I find these two books the most important and essential for Muslims. Muslims to understand the points that the author is making. Um, and they're kind of complementary halves. So you have the impossible state, which is more, he says it in the intro of restating Orientalism, that the that the the goal of the impossible state is more, the audience is a little bit more geared towards Muslims, whereas the audience of re, restating Orientalism is just a little bit more geared towards non-Muslims, but they deal with a lot of similar issues from slightly different perspectives. Um, so Again, back to the thesis of the book, if we're getting into, I'm just going to go through kind of the main points of the intro. His main thesis is that there is no such thing as yeah. an Islamic state. Um, that the Sharia, if we're going to understand what the Sharia is, the Sharia is a unity of moral and legal forces. Mm. Okay, Whereas the state is predicated upon the separation of those two. Okay, yeah. the state is a legal force primarily, and it has largely abandoned uh, the moral force, whereas the Sharia is a unity of the two. 
Put differently, we could say that Sharia, indigenously in our tradition, is a um, is a sovereign force that regulates society and it regulates government. Okay, mm -hmm. which is a crucial distinction from what we have as the state now, the nation state, whereas the state is what regulates society. And it also, even in the Muslim majority countries or countries that claim to rule by the Sharia or have, um, let's say, uh, certain laws that are based or sourced in the Sharia, and we'll talk about what it means to have it sourced in the Sharia in a second, that the state is what is governing those things. Okay, The state is what is governing the Sharia and not the other way around, which yeah. his argument is that that is a complete uh, contradiction. If you do that, then you've handcuffed uh, the Sharia, you've you know tied its arms behind its back, and mm -hmm. it is not the Sharia any longer. Um, it's important to note and, and, you know, the role of colonialism, European colonialism in all of this. So historically, yeah. historically, you know, the author says that the European colonial process, he uses the term eviscerated the Sharia. Yeah. Okay. So it's a pause. Uh, sorry. The word eviscerate, uh, means if I'm not mistaken to empty, to disembowel something, you know, if, if you were to eviscerate a goat, uh, of its innards, uh, you know, um, or, or, or a human being, it means to empty, disembowel. Is not is a quite a violent metaphor, but you're basically you're gutting it, uh, and you, and you may have the outward form. You know, the word may still linger, mm -hmm. but the essence of it, the innards, have been removed, disemboweled. So, eviscerate is uh, what that means. Uh, I looked up the word earlier, knowing uh, that Wallach uses it quite a lot in his book. Yes, and it's a very specific term that he's using because mm -hmm. it's not that Sharia has been completely been exactly. obliterated or absent no what we have is just the shell of sharia the outward form and this is represented by using sharia as a source of law rather than a paradigm of, of law or a paradigm for society which yeah. will explain what what all that means in a bit inshallah but this is the the idea that the process of european colonization eviscerated emptied gutted the sharia yes. and it smashed its autonomy Okay, yes. we'll talk about that as well. And it smashed its sovereignty, right? Sovereignty meaning the ultimate authority. At the end of the day, what has ultimate th uh, ultimate authority? We can't point to any place on the mm. face of the earth right now and say that the Sharia has the ultimate authority, which is a crucial point in his argument. And it so just, just, pause, just pause there, just for Westerners like myself who, who, who may, not, may not know. Well, when we point at Muslim countries or Muslim majority countries and say, you know, these are Muslim countries, they're run by Sharia, you know, that kind of language. Well, you know, since the time of Napoleon or British colonialism, the French and the British and other countries, you know, as, as, as you say, uh, Islamic law has been largely replaced by European law, Napoleonic law, British law, like in India and so on. There may be elements to Sharia left, like uh, 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 maybe inheritance law, divorce law, things like that. But the the, the paradigm, the, the place of Sharia in those societies has been completely changed, eviscerated, uh, as you say. So it's not good enough to point to a particular Muslim country and say, aha, there's Sharia law. Uh, we've got to take, as you say, take into account the realities, the historical realities of colonialism and, and what the European powers did to those countries, which are, which are still present within those countries today, that they didn't disappear uh, after formal political independence. The political and polit uh, legal systems continue to endure, I think, since then. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yes. And so, yeah. no, that's, that's the crucial distinction. And so the colonial era, it basically turned or redefined the Sharia um, from a paradigm, which is what it was before, an all-encompassing paradigm with authority and autonomy and sovereignty. Uh, and it turned it into a source of law, which is something. A, a, so, a source of law. I like that. Right. Along um, with Napoleonic law and British law and whatever law. Right. But even yeah. if, even if for the sake of argument, even if we had a nation state that every single law it had was sourced in the Sharia, it's very, very different to say that a particular law or a body of laws is sourced in the Sharia versus is Sharia the entire paradigm and definition of law in and mm -hmm. of itself. That's a very, very different thing. And mm -hmm. we'll get to kind of, I mean, if, if you really want to click a quick litmus test, and sometimes people pop in the comments, they say, well, what about this government? And what about that government? Yeah. And the litmus test is actually very easy. If the Sharia can disband the government, then the Sharia <laughs> has ultimate authority. Wow. And if the government can disband Sharia, then the state has complete authority or ultimate authority. And there's not a place on the face of the earth right now 
where the Sharia has the, the power to, or, or the representatives, because the Sharia is not uh, an individual, right? The representatives of the Sharia, the ulama, uh, can disband a government. But yeah, we have lots of places that, where the opposite yeah, is true. I think an Arabic country, which I won't name, I don't want to get into pointing at particular countries by name, but there's one that, that uh, many Muslims point to as the best. Oh, we're going to get there. We, we will uh, point yeah, them out yeah, by name. Because we'll, it, we'll, because we'll it, it, it's your example, that, that the ulama there can't actually overthrow the government or they can't make yes. it because it's a partnership between yes. political and the ulama which goes back to the 18th century mm -hmm. um so the I, I in a sense it, it makes your point i agree with you yeah no we'll get we will have to unfortunately okay. and, and we like to talk about things uh in in generalities because they they you know don't touch off people's sort of emotional reactions yeah. as much however with this sort of topic we are going to have to get into specificities okay. um, you want to get specificities up to you okay <laughs> I'll, I'll take the burden you know you don't have to comment <laughs> that's right yeah um so yes so uh, the redefinition of the sharia mm -hmm. as not the paradigm but rather a source of law Okay, even if all the laws are sourced in the Sharia, it's no longer the paradigm, it's no longer the ultimate authority, it can be disbanded at any moment in time by the state. Okay, yeah. that's a huge difference. And second, the Sharia as something that is merely a legitimizing factor, uh, right, for the state. Okay, so so that's mm. the big thing if you're trying to track it. Sharia going from a paradigm to going to a source and a source of legitimacy. They're two mm -hmm. very, very different things. And in the first chapter, premises, we'll talk about that in more detail. Um, it's interesting to note, and this is part of what makes Islam sort of the last bastion of hope, I think, for the world entirely, and, and even a source of possible redemption for the Western world, that the Ummah is very, very different and differently temperamented than the uh, the Muslim governments or the governments in the in the Muslim world. So mm -hmm. there was really, you know, if we look across the Muslim world at the average, you know, masjid going Muslim, people want Sharia, right? Even as you said, the author himself, uh, perhaps a Christian, a Palestinian Christian, uh, wants Sharia, right? He he prefers it or would prefer it, even if he's got, even if he were to assert that. It doesn't exist at any single place in time right now um, in its truly organic and indigenous form. Um, he would prefer it over the sorts of types of governance that we have now. Um, and so this is something that perhaps the majority of Muslims feel across the world, which is, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, obviously there, there was a specific sort of thing that happened uh, in 2015 when uh, the, the quote unquote Islamic State uh, Daesh, you know, arose, and obviously Daesh is it was horrible and had all sorts of problems and excesses, and uh, was completely un-Islamic for for ways in which we'll actually talk about. And it's revealing that they were called an Islamic state. And here Halak is saying that's an impossibility, right, to be mm -hmm. an Islamic state. It turned it in the state basically turned it into a monster. Um, but if you notice, you know, we have to account for and explain the phenomenon why there were so many Muslims who wanted to go there. You know, are every single Muslim in the in the world that tried to go or thought it would would be, um, you know, a, a positive thing to go and try to live under that that sort of rogue regime? Um, were they all just bloodthirsty animals? I can't believe that. I think that people, many people, had a decent intention and were misled and and duped um, by sort of what they sort of thought that it would be. And then there's lots of stories and exposés about people going there and then finding that it was the opposite of what they thought it was. Um, but the main point that's per that's pertinent to our discussion is that people have this desire. Muslims still have this desire to to live according to the Sharia and be according uh, to live in a society that is organized and operated under the guidance of the Sharia. Uh, and if, um, I just, if I may, if I just, just add, add a footnote there, uh, um, uh, I, I did a video uh, recently. A Muslim skeptic made this uh, or publicized this online. Uh, a, a report, a survey that came out just a few months ago of. Uh, uh, you know, millions of Arab youth, that's 18, 24-year-olds in the Levant, North Africa, you know, the Middle East, uh, and the, the vast majority of youth. Uh, so there's no older people who might be traditionally inclined. Uh, the majority of them uh, want uh, Sharia uh, and, and very, very clear uh, result there, which is uh, perhaps good news globally for the Ummah, but uh, is bound to perhaps raise some concerns in Western policy, foreign policy circles in Washington and so on, because the the attempt to secularize and liberalize and modernize, heavy inverted commas here, uh, the Arab youth um, in the Middle East doesn't appear to have worked very well uh, because they are stubbornly sticking with their religion. Um, 
There you go. You know, it's it's amazing that you and I didn't confer before this interview because that was literally the next point that I had written down. Oh, no, so, am I stealing no, 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 no. It's it, it's balance. You 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 saved me from having to bring it up. Allahu Akbar. Oh no, no, um, I didn't mean to. Great minds. No, no, that's actually wonderful. Uh, so great minds think alike. Exactly. So we still, alhamdulillah, we still have this desire. The ummah yeah. wants Sharia. However, the desire is deferred, or the desire is unmet. We our yeah. desire is misled into various failing attempts to. Uh, live according to the shell of sharia or things that are called sharia yes. um, or things that are sourced in sharia and the frustration keeps on building because every single one of these projects fails whether it's uh, something as crazy as an extreme as isis or whether it's other sorts of experiments with islamic constitutionalism uh, mm -hmm. such as uh, pakistan and egypt right we can anybody look to pakistan yeah. and egypt and say that at one point and we talked about egypt specifically when we went over the um formations of the secular by Talal al-assad yeah. um was justifying its sort of constitutionalism on Islamic grounds, saying that it is sourced in the Sharia and we're deriving this constitution from Sharia sources, from Islamic law. And look at what a spectacular failure it is. Who can look at, at Egypt right now and say that Egypt is a, a representative of, of, of the Sharia? Absolutely, um, you know, uh, impossible to believe in. And Pakistan as well, right? Pakistan as well, you know, to, to various degrees, and we can talk about degrees, but if, if anybody would look and say that this is a true representation Presentation of Sharia, um, we would be we would be really stretching it, like to sort of describe those states as being representative of the Sharia. So that's one way, and and those two examples, Egypt and, and Pakistan, are sort of ways in which maybe more liberal forces have won out in a, in a certain. Uh, uh, we could debate that, you know, either either liberal cultural forces or liberal governance, in addition to sort of authoritarian. Um, figureheads. And then there's examples like Iran and Saudi Arabia, which have sort of, you know, gone the sort of way of um, a similarly authoritarian way. Um, and that's where we, we do have to name names here because we're talking about um, governments that justify, right, there's legitimization again, they justify sort of their, either their existence entirely or their particular policies or you know, um, even the laws that they have as being supposedly sourced in the Sharia. Uh, you, you, you've lived in Saudi Arabia. You, you worked there. You studied there. Obviously, yes. where you've got your academic uh, qualifications. And um, well done for that. But it, it, Saudi Arabia does claim very much to be based. Its constitution is the Quran. I mean, uh, it, it doesn't claim to be a secular country at all. But they have this unique power sh sharing arrangement, don't they? Between uh, you know, historically, the uh, uh, the, the Saudi uh, lineage and and the uh, uh, Ibn Wahhab, the, mm -hmm. the scholar, of course, who had the this interesting arrangement, which goes back to the beginning of the the first Saudi state. And mm -hmm. uh, and and you're saying by your definition, you know, the, the the ulama there couldn't overthrow the government or get rid of it because they are they are locked together in this historic pact, which which is the very definition of what it is to be Saudi Arabian, isn't it? Right. I mean, to call it a pact is even, I think, quite generous. I would say that you know the state has the apparatus of the yeah. security apparatus and the and the and the weaponry and things like that and the state derives its its legitimacy from sort of uh, claiming that it you know gives sort of a certain amount of lip service to islamic scholarship and this and that and the third but what's the reality you know the, the reality is that uh, the state completely gets to set the parameters for what religiosity looks like and what it can look like. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you're very dependent upon the virtue and the sort of piety of an either an individual king or ruler, or sort of what are the expediencies of the state, right? What is ex As long as it is expedient for the state to have an Islamic flavor, then they will sort of resort to that. But as soon as it stops being expedient or useful, mm -hmm. then they will discard that. And actually, we live in that time period now. You know, I, I arrived there in 2015. I left in in um, in 2020. And the changes that had occurred in those five years, you know, were, were dramatic. Um, and uh, a lot of those those changes, a lot, it, it's well known. It's been very, very criticized. Um, but the and then recently we're looking we saw halloween being celebrated apparently with official approval we've seen rock concerts uh we've seen all sorts of highly westernized hedonistic activities apparently 
approved of i'm sure they wouldn't happen without the approval anyway of uh the authorities in saudi arabia and it's quite right. shocking to see yeah. if you're not used to seeing that in that country and the concerts and all the sort of things you know yeah. like so so this is the thing so we have to we have to back up and it's it's not i think we get lost when these sorts of issues are talked about we get lost in the sort of vague language of ruling by the sharia or not ruling by the sharia or what are the ulama doing are the ulama sort of like advising them behind closed doors I think that's a secondary issue compared to who has the ultimate authority. And right. as long as the state has the ultimate authority, it will use religion for, and it will use Islam and the scholars and the ulama and everything, um, as long as they're useful to, uh, you know, giving legitimacy towards, you know, even their rule in general or to p particular projects or policies that they want. But the second they're not useful, they have that authority. They have the authority to disband the ulama, to stop all the lessons in the haram. They have the authority to uh, go back and, and, and revise the textbooks, which they have done uh, recently in Saudi Arabia, and change the curriculum, right? Education, especially, and this is something that Halak gives more importance to in um, restating Orientalism, education is entirely centralized under the state, right? It's not an independent thing that's decentralized, that's under the supervision of the ulama. Yeah. Um, and so that's the difference. If we're talking about the difference between paradigm and uh, source, right? Like that's that's the trick and that's the rub, right? Uh, Sharia is not just a source of law. It's not just the individual laws. It is an entire paradigm. Um, and there's not a place on earth today where that paradigm exists. Um, and that's the main thesis of the, yes, go ahead. No, just to add a further strand to this, uh, in the uh, premises, which is the opening uh, introductory chapter to the impossible uh, state that we're discussing. Um, the, the author uh, um, discusses a, another example of a paradigm, uh, a non-Islamic one, uh, which is to do with, uh, which is de defines in a sense the modern nation state um, uh, as we live it today. And it's, uh, it's the Enlightenment states. So this is page seven. And I wanted to read this paragraph, if I may, for two reasons. One, um, because I want to give you an example of the flavor of the way uh, Wallach writes. And uh, I, I'm not the only one, I think, to find his writing style um, a little bit difficult uh, to digest, um, a little bit clunky, perhaps. What, what, once one gets used to it, one can go with the flow. You just uh, you ride the tiger, so to speak. But it, it is challenging to read. Uh, uh, in terms of, as literature, uh, if I can call it literature, but also uh, perhaps more importantly in reading this, I want to share with you his profound insight actually into the ruling Western paradigm politically to do with the nation itself. And he roots this ideology in the enlightenment. Uh, and, and what he says, I think is uh, very insightful. And it certainly rings true for me. So uh, I'll do my best to make what he writes understandable by emphasizing certain clauses and paragraphs um he writes it's just one paragraph the enlightenment which obviously happened in europe uh highly relevant to our concerns here provides yet another example of a paradigm now this word paradigm by the way is one of halleck's key terms there is no doubt that this project encompassed intellectual and political movements that ranged across a wide spectrum of intellectual difference Suffice it here to cite the philosophical divergences of and dramatically opposing Weltanschauungs between and among, I swear it's very difficult language, um, then he quotes Hobbes, Voltaire, Rousseau, Hume, Spinoza, Kant, Hegel, J.S. Mill and Marx, to mention only a few. It would thus seem impossible to lump them and many others together much less the thought systems and movements they generated under any single identifiable category yet however and this is the key insight which is why he's so clever in a way it is eminently arguable that the enlightenment in its totality in other words overall overall the enlightenment despite its kierkegaards and herders for example these are idiosyncratic um, writers of the Enlightenment. They, these writers overall exhibits a paradigm, one featuring a shared substrate of assumptions and presuppositions that bestows on it a certain unity despite its internal multiplicity. In other words, all these disparate internally contradictory writers that emerge uh, from the Enlightenment nevertheless uh, can be characterized in a single way. As John Gray has aptly argued, he quotes, the core project of the Enlightenment, quote, was the displacement of local customary or traditional moralities 
and all forms of transcendental faith, all forms, of, in other words, religion is out by a critical or rational morality, which was projected as the basis of a universal civilization. I'll just pause here and give an example for my own, uh, what my favorite example is this book. Ooh, there we go. Uh, by Immanuel Kant, called The Groundwork for the Metaphysic Metaphysics of Morals. It's not actually very long. Uh, I do really recommend it if you want to get uh, under the skin of Enlightenment rationalist morality, exactly the sort of thing that Wallach is talking about. And he continues, this new morality, which uh, Kant himself is a seminal thinker, this new morality is uh, secular and humanist and binding on all human beings so Kant's categorical imperative is by definition a universal moral code that's binding on everyone. That's one of the definitions of it. Would set universal standards for the assessment of all human institutions. That was a quote of John Gray there. And then while that continues, under the command of human reason, key Kantian term, human reason, finally divorced of traditional principles of morality, the project would aim to create a universal civilization. Uh, this is the project that animated Marxism and liberalism in all of their varieties. I love the way that Wallach here sees the common ideological or philosophical root in Marxism and liberalism. You think of these normally as being completely antithetical, but he's saying no, they're both animated in all their varieties by this principle, which underpins both new liberalism as well and new neoconservatism. And he concludes, it is this core project that is shared by all enlightenment thinkers, however pessimistic or dystopic they may sometimes be as to its historical prospects. This core project, the enlightenment project, constituted the central domain by which all major and central problems were solved and which gave and continues to give direction for better or worse to our ways of life end quote that's page eight and i was when i read this i was struck by um just recently the news the the big fuss that's been made uh, over uh, the uh, qatar football um uh tournament uh because uh, Qatar uh, dares to have um, a value system which is derived from the Sharia. We can be, we can use this word openly now and not be ashamed to proclaim what it is. It's the S word, the Sharia word. Um, but the point about the point I'm mentioning that is, given what I've just quoted, that it's the the universal pretensions, this universal civilization based on reason, mm -hmm. that is the self definition of the Enlightenment project, and is explicitly spoken of by key thinkers like. Uh, Kant in his groundwork for the metaphysical morals is what we are having to do with here a, 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 a an assumption of a global morality uh, that is explicitly desacralized the social order which which has taken morality uh, religious values out of it and, and obviously denies the Sharia its sovereign place in the body politic um, anyway that would be my just wanted to share that with you folks yeah, that's a brilliant quote, and and I think we'll we'll circle back to a couple of the themes there. I think that, well, some of the highlights of that quote are the assumption that reason is universal and homogenous, right, yes. and then that morality can be founded on reason as opposed to revelation. Exactly. So the, the first point is exactly what drives liberalism to be supremacist and um, imperialist, right? Mm -hmm. Why isn't there sort of an ethic of, well, that's just how the way they do things in Qatar. Why do they feel the need to stamp out all dissent, right? Because the assumption that reason is universal and morality is founded in re the only way to have a universal agreed upon civilization is to ground it in a supposedly universal reason. And mm -hmm. now this is a morality that is sourced or defined in something other than that. And so it needs to be uh, stamped out. Um, mm -hmm. We'll circle back to that, definitely. One of the things, you know, so we're talking about um, why is this off so many people's radar? The difference, you know, you're mentioning the Enlightenment paradigm and the Sharia mm -hmm. as a paradigm. You mm -hmm. know, why is this off so many people's radar? And and Halak, he sort of highlights how some of the, w the language that we use um, and the way that we anachronistically apply certain terms really obfuscates and hides these realities, right? So we use the word state and we use the word citizenship in very careless and imprecise ways that actually mask the difference between the Sharia as a paradigm versus the Sharia as a source or a tool for legitimacy. Um, 
you know, people will talk about the, um, you know, the original sort of political situation in Medina, right, as the constitution of Medina, right, or the 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 early Muslim state, right, and there's a certain a, there's a certain assumption going on here that the state is a universal and trans historical category, yeah. right, that is that it literally it's a substitute for any sort of political arrangement as opposed to being a, polit- a a particular political technology and a specific set of relations between government and subject and law and morality mm-hmm. right so that's an extremely important uh, pillar of Halak's thought is that the state is not a universal or trans-historical category. The state is a particular set of relations between subjects, government, law, and ethics, or morality, whatever have you. Um, and so we can't look back in time before the nation state and call every single system of government and every sort of political arrangement as a state that is anachronistic and it actually masks the types of changes that have occurred um the other term that obfuscates and hides these things is the term of citizenship you Mm -hmm. know citizenship is the primary category of subjectivity in the modern secular uh episteme and so when when people think about themselves you look at the map right the map's all all green over here and all pink over there and we're thinking in terms of the citizen okay and and when we talk about things in the past before there literally was such a thing as citizenship um we refer to it as a citizen we refer to the citizens of medina or the citizens of you know the early uh muslim empires there was no such thing as citizenship because again citizenship is actually referring to a particular set of relations between subject and government right citizenship is defined by passports by uh, bureaucracy by having to register your birth and your death and submit travel documents if you want to move from here to there. All these sorts of things that were unknown until Mm. very, very recently. So it's Mm. not accurate. It's anachronistic, right? To apply these modern terms indefinitely backwards in time. And when we do, it actually masks and conceals from us the changes that have happened in subjectivity or subjecthood. What was the relationship between the subject and the governing sort of apparatus if it wasn't a state? If we're using the same words and the same terms to refer to all of it, we can't even begin to ask that question. Mm. So that's one of the things that we're going to be kind of deconstructing here. Um, And so if we are properly defining what a state is. We're, we're not assuming that it's this trans-historical universal category. No, the state is actually something very particular that refers to a particular set of relations. Then uh, Halak is saying that once we crystallize and define what this is, then it will become clear that there is no reclaiming the sharia within the state apparatus or the state system. He His uh, assertion in this book is that the very logic of the state as a political technology, as a set of relations, completely and categorically um, excludes the Sharia as a paradigmatic force, as yeah. a possibility. Uh, if I could just, there's an amazing quote that really shook me when I, I read it on page 10 in the introductory chapter, uh, where, where um, Halak writes, we take it for granted that no one can live outside of citizenship, for no one can find an independent space outside the state. There is no neutral site between one state and another, and nothing allows a human being to be just a human being without, one without political state-based affiliation that's on uh, page 10 and I thought wow what, what an extraordinary insight you talk about thinking outside of the box because literally you can't go anywhere and not be a subject or a citizen of a state you just can't go into a field somewhere or, a, or up a mountain because it's going to be some somewhere mm-hmm. some government somewhere is going to claim that I, I just thought actually maybe that's not quite maybe parts of Antarctica uh, I, I don't know are not claimed by anyone quite yet or maybe america claims it all i don't know and maybe parts <laughs> of the moon are not i don't know but it's just interesting that you're not we're not free of states anywhere we go we, we are obliged to be state subjects or state citizens and and that struck me as a very modern thing because in the past you could just roam around and and, and not be a subject of a state or a citizen mm-hmm. like we are today 
or have complex allegiances, right? Have allegiances yeah. to more than one sort of um, body politic, whether, you know, you would have an allegiance to your sort of religious body politic, and then you would have a particular government that was responsible for you, and then maybe even others, right? So, and this is something that Halak gets to, and also Esad gets to in his books about yeah, the simplification, the simplification yeah. of both time and space. That's one of the hallmarks of modernity. Yeah. Um, so due to this, due to these sort of competing paradigms, right, like the modern state as a paradigm and Sharia as a paradigm, the state cannot possibly promote Islamic values, mm. except when done selectively and when convenient to the state. And mm. if you just look at the history of the Ummah, and especially in contemporary times, we see that playing out every single day. Um, the modern state, this is the last sort of comment for the, the intro, the modern state exists now in a, a period of crisis and a moral predicament. And so why are we talking about these things right now? We believe that you know we're not trying to go backwards in time necessarily, though there are some certain things in, back in time that are they're worth recapturing or trying to trying to recapture. Um, but really the modern state has reached a point of crisis. Um, and we believe that the Sharia specifically and Islam generally has the solutions to these crises and the solutions to these uh, to the predicaments that the modern world finds itself in. And Halak says that they are not simply political crises; they're not simply economic crises. That these are fundamentally moral yeah. crises, yeah, exactly. right? And that they are secondarily political or economic. And it's exactly the distinction and the separation of law and the state from morality that was that's the hallmark of the modern state that has got us in this mess in the first place and if people don't quite grasp that just ask a simple question if we're citizens of the uk like i am or you the united states or france or germany any western country and you ask you ask of your of your your, your governments your rulers what, what what is it to be a good person how should i morally live does god mm -hmm. exist if he does how am i to follow him Mm -hmm. um and, and i can go to the list of really hot button moral issues and the government will not give you an answer it won't tell you how to live your life it is a moral free zone and indeed many would say that's the point they don't want to be uh morally uh charged except now with this emergent kind of quasi religion and wokeism which is slightly, mm -hmm. slightly, slightly different but it doesn't really it doesn't really get to the metaphysics or the philosophy mm -hmm. of life it's just mm -hmm arguing about certain alternative lifestyles, um, right. which are arguably extremely minor and marginal issues, although they, they for some reason, have taken center stage in Western uh, discourse and political posturing, particularly towards Qatar, as we've already said. Mm. Goodness knows why, because this particular issue, without going into it, well, you know, is very marginal, affects very few people numerically, and yet it's so central, apparently. Well, um, it's because of what it represents, right? The, it's, yeah, it's not about I, I, yeah I don't want to go, I, exactly. So, but the point is, the governments won't give it. If, if I was to go to 10 Downing Street or, or go up to Pennsylvania Avenue and say, that Mr. Ruler, how should I live my life to be a good person? He'll say, go and talk to you, go, go away. You know, he won't tell you. Or they'll probably say, vote for me or something. But right. it's not there. It's not meant to be part of the DNA of a modern state. And mm -hmm. uh, but Islam, called the Islamic understanding of society, is much more holistic and moral. There's a moral evaluation of the human being uh, as, a, as a person who is created by God with certain obligations and duties to the poor and the weak. And so it's a very rich, complex moral universe mm -hmm. in the public sphere which has been removed, I think, from, look at France, for example, the laicite, it's being deliberately uh, eviscerated, that's the word, um, from the public domain. Yes, and that's not to say that the state does not have metaphysical assumptions or does not, at the end of the day, have certain moral assumptions. It does. However, it doesn't self-understand as taking stances on moral issues or participating in the um, moral sort of formation of its subjects. Right. And so the morality that is kind of asserted by those sorts of forces is very thin. Um, yes. It's very, very thin compared to, it's like they say, like you can't not do philosophy, either you're doing it well or you're doing it poorly, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a similar thing when it comes to moral yeah. formation. You yeah. can imagine that you're not 
doing moral formation. But in reality, either you realize that you're doing it and so you're yeah. paying attention to it and doing it sort of well, or you don't realize the ways in which you're doing yeah. it and you're doing it very poorly. So, so the, the way to go is the secularism or secular liberalism would be one way of describing the ideology or the philosophical underpinnings of Western civilization, which mm -hmm. is formed its which attempts is forming its citizens to look at the world in a certain very secular, narrowly liberal defined way. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so the moral predicament of the modern state, Halak, identifies three uh, major sort of nodes or points of crisis. One is the collapse of organic social units, uh, the family and religion. Number two is the rise of oppressive economic forms. Um, in a different and specific way from what we've seen in the pre-modern era. And then three, and this is the most uh, essential one for Halak, uh, and I think good on him for, for stressing this throughout his works, is the not just destruction, but the extinction of the environment, right? All of these three sort of things and crises were not possible without the uh, without the unhinging or decoupling of morality from the state or from the political technology, the system of governments, governance, whatever you want to call it. And we'll get into, because there's some doubts that people have about that, we'll, we'll unpack that later. Um, but before moving on to the first chapter, premises, um, Halak makes a really interesting comment in passing. He does it twice. And um, it's significant to me personally because, um, you know, uh, Halak is in the tradition of Foucault. You know, we're talking about why he's so difficult to read. Well, I blame Foucault <laughs> because he's in the he's in the tradition of, of Foucault and he follows in his footsteps with a lot of things. Um, he, he notes something just in passing that there's a similarity in Islamic critiques of modernity and postmodern critiques of modernity. And I, th I thought that was very, very fascinating because I also, when I was coming to Islam, I felt that sort of, um, you know, uh, confluence or that, that overlap. And then he said, what we're trying to get into now, the project of sort of historical and moral retrieval of a past episteme or a past set of relations, right, is something that is also shared by both uh, by both sort of the uh, aspiring Islamic uh, sort of episteme and also a postmodern one as well, trying to reclaim the lost world um, that has been destroyed and even yeah because a lot of people, you know, and rightfully so, postmodernism gets a lot of heat as well as it should. But here's a trailer for the for the next video series when we get into um, uh, restating Orientalism. I think there's a crucial distinction between sort of the the track that postmodern theorists went when after Edward Said and the tra trajectory that Halak is on. Um, yeah. I think that Said very much sort of shaped um, or paved the way for a lot of the woke politics and the things that we see today that are, we find so distasteful. Whereas it didn't necessarily, you know, not everything within sort of post-structuralist or post-modern thought had to be that way. In fact, even if you go back to Foucault, there's many things worth salvaging in the works of Foucault when it comes to analyzing and critiquing the modern world and the modern episteme. And as Halak is, is I think, brilliant to point out, there's actually a lot of uh, overlap there in those things. Um, so in the, the first chapter premises, he's talking, he, he poses a central question. He says, how did, okay, so if they didn't have a state, if Muslims did not have a state, then how did they rule themselves mm -hmm. before the state came onto the scene? What type of political rule, uh, did they adopt and what are they adopting now? Is it something that we can call the Sharia or not? And so this is where he's going to go a little bit more into detail with his difference between the Sharia as a paradigm versus the Sharia as a source. And it's extremely significant to register here that all of the political arrangement that we have throughout the world today in the Muslim lands, it is inherited from the post-colonial state. Even the places, even the places that weren't formally colonized, like Iran or or uh, or Turkey, um, the type of relations between government and subject and law and morality are all inherited from the logic of somewhere else, right? The yeah. colonial state. In, in Turkey's case, France, uh, the, the yes. French system, I see, is explicitly adopted by Ataturk in the French Republic, in the yes. Turkish Republic. Yeah. And so the places even that have achieved independence, a type of independence from their former colonial masters, they have a very formal type of independence. However, they are not yet independent from the paradigm of law and the definition of law and the paradigm, the, the sort of uh, even worldview that they had inherited 
from these colonial systems. And so what we see, we see something mismatched. And this is what, you know, um, uh, Halak, I think he uses the term that the Muslim world sits uncomfortably within the political technology of the state. Um, we have these uh, sort of authoritarian regimes and oppressive regimes and failed states and things like that um, throughout the Muslim world. And it damages the reputation of the Sharia insofar as if any one of them claims to represent the Sharia or claims to apply the Sharia. Because in reality, again, according to Halak, and I agree with him, there is no Sharia there. Even if there are certain individual laws that are sourced from the Sharia, um, the whole paradigm is not there. And so when things are applied sort of haphazardly and halfway, um, we get a mutant, right? We get some sort of um, uh, some sort of new thing that is uh, has the violence of the state and a certain sort of, um, you know, all of the baggage, all of those moral sort of issues that we just talked about that are part and parcel of the modern state, but now they have, a, they have an Islamic veneer, which is even more sort of discouraging and uh, disconcerting. So, we're living with this political technology that was forced upon us and we're essentially, as Halak says, we're, we're living somebody else's history, right? The idea of a state, like the political technology and the relationships that we have now, does not come, it's not sourced, it was not, it was not originated within Muslim lands. Okay, it was started in Europe, right? From particular historical circumstances, from particular intellectual trends. We're talk we talked about the Enlightenment. Um, certain sort of developments in technology and the pro uh, the relations between uh, production and consumer and these sorts of things with the industrial revolution. You have the American and French sort of constitutional traditions and the revolutions. All of these things are sourced within Europe. Okay, so the state is a very, very European thing. And we'll talk in the following chapter for next video about what makes a state a state. Halakha identifies five things that are essential components of the state. And one of these is that it is a European thing. It's not even universal now, much less even like transhistorically looking into the past. But even now, it's something that was uh, that was a product of the laboratory of Europe and European experience. And even the references to political sort of antecedents or excuse me, precedents outside of Europe, they're really just more about legitimizing. Like, so, you know, we talk about Athens, we talk about the Magna Carta, you know, these sorts of things that were part of, yes, Europe mainland, but pre-modern, okay? Hmm. They're really more for legitimization purposes. And if you were actually to compare, um, we couldn't call those states, you know, we might call them proto-states or things that had an, an implication or uh, a bearing upon the, the modern state, but it's not the same thing at all. The, the state is, is European and the state is truly modern and very, very recent. So if we're stuck with this arrangement, if we're stuck with this relationship between this particular relationship between government and subject and law and morality, then we're not being allowed to truly draw upon our own history or our own historical experience in a paradigmatic way, in a fundamental way. We have to use the house that is given to us by the European colonists, and we're allowed to bring in some you know, pieces of art or furniture from our own sort of tradition. But the house itself, the house itself has to be of this sort of European. And, and just, uh, just a very small footnote, I was talking to a friend of mine who is e e Egyptian, and um, he, he was talking about the state of Egypt at the moment. I don't want to go down that, that particular path, but they recently had to go to the IMF to bail out uh, the country which is billions of dollars in debt and they're becoming and the imf being an american economic institution you know the dependence of a very ancient and noble muslim society or state whatever on the west continues uh in quite degrading ways for the uh for the egyptian people and there's such a it's such a, a tragic and sad story to hear the details of what's going on in egypt at the moment and, and egypt is better than some other countries one could one could mention um uh, it's just it's the degradation, the support, this the subordination of Muslim countries to the West economically in the way and the way that IMF is imposing conditions on getting these huge loans in terms of privatization and other disruptions to the eternal order of Egyptian society. It's just one quick snapshot, nothing very uh, fascinating, but but it illustrates what's going on at the moment in this asymmetry of power and the way these uh, economic arrangements and political arrangements still disadvantage in some ways Muslim countries even now as we speak. Very much so. Yeah. So the, the modern state, you know, the, let's say the state is a product of modernity. It yeah. assumes 
modernity. And we'll talk about that and what that is in a second. And it also assumes progress. And we're going to unpack that in a second. Okay. Because progress has to do with certain beliefs, metaphysical beliefs about time, metaphysical beliefs about space and value, right? What is good? What's not good? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Halak points to three sort of things to kind of, because somebody could say, and this is always sort of like a, a knee jerk comment that we, that we get in the, the comment section of these sorts of things. Everything's always been the same. The pre-modern period is the same as the modern period. There's no real difference. There's always been war. There's always been uh, corruption. There's always been this. These are sort of, um, again, trans-historical and universal forces. Um, Halak points to three things and says, not so fast. There is there is a difference. There is a, actually a, quite a significant difference because whereas the doctrine of moder- modernity and progress, um, they justify themselves as having triumphed over pre-modernity in three key ways. One of them through poverty and disease. Right. So the argument is that, well, we've got it so much better now. Back in the Middle Ages, you know, you were wiped out by the plague and you had you just lived in poverty and, you know, these sorts of things. The second is freedom and specifically individual freedom. Okay, back then you didn't have the freedom to wear what you wanted to wear, to do what you wanted to do. Now we have freedom. And then finally, wealth and standard of living. Okay, so we are richer than we've ever been. And so this is a supposedly a self-evident sort of, um, you know, a piece of empirical evidence for why uh, the, the state is a positive force and we've gotten so far and modernity is doing great and progress is excellent. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, Halak pulls us back and he says, well, wait a second, let's, let's look at all of these, you know, individually. He says, poverty, disease, and famine, yes, it was true that it existed in the pre-modern sphere, but before modernity, before the state, this was something that was natural, right? It was something that the, the disease came naturally, the, the famine came naturally, the poverty came naturally. Whereas in the modern era, one of the hallmarks of the modern era is that these things are man-made. You have man-made diseases, you have man-made poverty, you have greed, right? And the type of inequality that we see in the world, um, absolutely staggering inequality that's getting worse and worse by the second is something that is of a particular modern flavor. Um, if we're going to point to the freedom and individuality, you know, Halak points back, he says, well, we have this fractured social structure, the, the fractured family, the destruction of community, right? This has been the price to pay. Um, and then finally, uh, if the modern era is superior because of wealth and standard of living, he says, again, what's the cost? The cost has been the absolute destruction and distinct and extinction of the natural world. Right. So, um, you know, Halak pushes back. He says, okay, yes, it is very, very different. The, first of all, for those of you who are going to say that everything's always just been the same, it's just, you know, different actors appearing and disappearing from stage. No, pre modernity is categorically different from modernity. Modernity is a thing, and it's a particular thing. Modernity sees itself as being superior to what came before it. And we'll talk more about that. It looks like we're running out of time, so perhaps next video. Um, whereas Halak is pushing back against that and saying, "No, no, no, it's not. It's not that simple. Is that modernity has uh, crises and has particular mm-hmm. problems that are rooted in its entire episteme, that are rooted in the the DNA of the thing. Okay, mm-hmm. the very, very structure of modernity and the state and the sort of idea about what it is that we're doing here." Um, it's not incidental. It's not that we just need more modernity or that technology is going to save us. Or once we invent the right vaccine or we invent the right, uh, we're able to grow food on Mars or whatever it is, then we'll be saved. That's that's missing the entire point. The entire point that Halak is trying to point out is that these crises that we've gotten into in the first place uh, are exactly because of the modern episteme, the modern separation between uh, morality and the state. And the state is the largest sort of player in this. If we're looking for what's the relationship between modernity and the state, uh, modernity, we could say, is the sort of uh, is the episteme, is all these sort of metaphysical sort of relationships or assumptions, and the state is the largest player in mm-hmm. enforcing these assumptions and these metaphysics and these values. Um, mm-hmm. So next time, uh, and because we're running up against prayer here, um, next time, you know, there's a charge here that is made against Halak and others. Uh, who sort of uh, adopt this posture, this anti-modern posture, Mm. which is that, and I personally believe that any sort of um, true Sharia paradigm or worldview has to be anti-modern in a specific definition of what modernity is. Modernity not as what's new or what's now, but modernity as Halak defines it, as a certain relationship and metaphysical assumption and values. Um, So people are going to charge you with romanticism. 
many people are going to say that, oh, you're just looking back on the past with rose-tinted glasses and you think things were so great. Well, it wasn't so great. Um, so Halak takes time to unpack one of the most central doctrines of modern thought and modernism, which is the doctrine of progress. Uh, and it's an extremely, extremely significant portion of the book responds yep. to a lot of people's knee-jerk reactions against all of these types of conversations. Yep. And inshallah ta'ala, uh, next time we'll get into that. And then what are the defining features of a state in the following chapter? Yeah, brilliant. Uh, that, we're very much uh, looking forward to that. I, I can't resist giving my my uh, my usual favorite quote from um, uh, his, his work, uh, Halak's work, which I've mentioned before, but I just want to repeat it because I love it so much. He said, let us remember what secularism is. Secularism, of course, is a key aspect of modernity. Um, secularism is not just segregating religious life into the private sphere. Oh, no, it's not just that. It is rather the determination of the state of what religion is and is not, where and how it can be exercised. In terms of political theology, secularism is the murder of God by the state. This is the most dramatic statement I've ever heard in my life. It's almost Shakespeare could have said that. The state can delimit, limit, exclude, or curtail any religious practice, and thus has the power to determine the quality and quantity of the religious sphere as it sees fit. Uh, and, and that is a very, uh, th that's where he his prose is very sublime. Occasionally he writes like an angel, sometimes he doesn't. Um, <laughs> but on that, on that occasion, he writes with almost Shakespearean passion. And uh, it's one of my all time favorite quotes. So thank you very much, Imam Tom, uh, indeed, for uh, your incredibly lucid and erudite exposition of the work of uh, this author, Walid Halak, The Impossible State, Islam, Politics and Modernity's Moral Predicament. I do recommend this book with all the caveats about its occasional impenetrable English. Well, it's not impenetrable. It's just ch a bit challenging. Um, and I do recommend um, Imam's, uh, Imam Tom's fantastic YouTube channel entitled Utica Masjid, which I will link to in the description below. Please do subscribe. Um, thank you, Tom, for your time. Until thank you. Okay, I look forward to our next to our next session inshallah. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.